Day in 1982, Survivor hits number one for the first of a six-week run. What's the song? Eye of the Tiger from film Rocky III. Now, in the movie, Rocky Balboa is shown resting on his laurels, living the good life, doing Amex commercials and photo ops, and slacking off on his training regimen, eating too many chips and donuts, unlike his rival, Mr. T. So after the death of Rocky's trainer, his friend, Apollo Creed, implores Rocky to get back to the eye of the tiger. Lay off the bad food, the chips and the donuts, and so the world was introduced to eye of the tiger. Isn't it a great story, Raj? Absolutely. And I mean, you know, to this day, I have such a Pavlovian reaction to this song that I'm almost ready to head off for a run. The moment it plays, while doing kind of air boxing as I run along the footpath, uh, that's the reaction it still inspires. A Pavlovian reaction to Eye of the Tiger, uh, that's just gold, isn't it, Catherine? I mean, and Raj is so right. You want to do something. You want to to stop eating junk food and do something with your life, don't you? Oh, yeah. No, it's exactly that same thing. All I think of, though, is how difficult that song is actually to sing at karaoke. Yeah, yeah. Really tough. He's got such a rain. Yeah, what a song. Anyway, um, look, uh, you are on the panel, and if you've just uh, just tuned in, we have been talking about the traumatization of one of the great children's films of all time. It shocked you. Rabbits with their throats ripped out, gory, shocking. But one person who said, hey, chill out, is Meredith. Kia ora, Meredith. Uh, hello, Meredith. Now, you loved it. Yeah. <laughs> Tell us why. Um, oh, it's, it's certainly very memorable, isn't it? Yeah. Well, I mean, as a kid, uh, you actually enjoy a certain amount of gore. <laughs> you know? Um, kids can be very bloodthirsty. Um, <laughs> and it's, it's so beautifully animated with that yeah. sort of... so painterly. Um and, you know, like the rabbits are in danger a lot, but they crack jokes and they troll each other and and then they have moments of heroism. And, yeah, it's, I think people forget that it has a happy ending, you know. Um, things, characters die, but, you know, once you live, you know, get to enjoy that. Well, I've just had another Pavlovian reaction to your, uh, to your thinking here, Meredith. I'm going to get it out. Or try and download it and watch it again because you've just—I've realised that actually 
tragedy does happen in real life. And if yeah. rabbits get their throats ripped out, and if it's <laughs> yep. so what? It's 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 life. Well, I mean, like if you think about a lot of the stuff kids interact with now, like violent video games and you know, um, lots of um, superhero movies yeah. with guns and violent action scenes. You know, I I don't think it's a big deal com- compared to that. Like you're thinking, Meredith. Hey, thanks for joining us on that. Appreciate it. No worries. Very good. Uh, That's Meredith, who absolutely loved Watership Down. She said, what's the problem? Uh, Watch it. It is 22 to 5, the panel, RNZ National. This is really interesting. You may well be watching the soaring temperatures across parts of the world. New extremes, the likes of which we've never seen as the earth heats inescapable heat in Europe. People are hospitalised for walking on pavements in Phoenix, Arizona. So we looked at any solutions that may help. And one solution is quite an affordable one. It's been a subject of research. The cool roof scenario, painting a non-toxic solution on your roof to reflect the sun's rays. With us is Dr. Aditi Bunker, Project Co-Lead, Tipo Toku Ora Akiwa, Centre for Pacific and Global Health, and the Heidelberg Institute of Global Health. Dr. Bunker, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me, Wallace. It's a pleasure. Tell us more about this trial, painting your roof white. Yeah, right. Actually, um, people have been doing it for centuries. So, for example, in the Mediterranean and things. Um, and now there's actually a big market and there are producers of... Um, roofing solutions that are actually making cool roof um, materials that we can apply on roofs, which have a couple of really um, interesting properties. One is that they're highly reflective, and second, they also have high thermal emittance. They release the heat, and so ultimately this reduces the indoor temperature. And that's what we're interested in because this is a passive cooling solution that doesn't require active energy use. And... um, then we're kind of partnering with the manufacturers and producers in a public-private partnership type scenario and as academics testing these solutions to see how they work um, using trial methodologies. I think this is just wonderful and I'm really interested and I know that our listeners will because all I see around me in Tamaki Makoto is a sea, an absolute sea of dark roofs. But I see here that a dark roof reflects 20% of sunlight, a white roof 80%. Yeah, that's right. So um, they have special raw materials um, in these cool roof um, membranes and coatings, and um, they have highly reflective properties, and so they're able to um, to reflect these radiation that comes in, and um, they're cr- pretty durable and long-lasting too, and they have other benefits. They're water-resistant, um, have really good adhesion and strength, um, and also have fire retardant properties. Yeah. So, yeah, it's pretty cool. What questions do you have, Catherine? Interesting, isn't it? I was just thinking about because a lot of and a lot of people in Hawke's Bay, especially around where I live, have um, solar panels, and we were thinking of getting solar panels as well. I mean, is this in contradiction to this cool roof system, or do they work in partnership? No, they can actually work in partnerships, so you can easily coat the roof underneath solar panels. 
Um, and so there's no real adverse effects because the solar panel doesn't completely cover your roof. And the yeah. other great thing about the cool roofs is that they actually reduce your energy use. So you might end up using less active mechanical cooling and air conditioning, um, which is one of the things that we're testing in our trials. Raj. Um, yeah, I hugely welcome this and other effective low-cost solutions. And I'm sure that the consultations with local communities would also lead to discussions of other traditional building solutions that have always been part of a community's heritage and help mitigate the impact of factors like heat. So, you know, because um, um, one thing Aditi mentioned and, and I wanted to mention is that one thing I feel very strongly every time I visit India is that increased air conditioning can never be a sustainable solution, even though more and more people understandably use it, because not only does it massively increase our um, footprint, it um, not only does it massively increase our climate footprint through the use of electricity, but also the hot air that the air conditioner pumps out actually increases the ambient temperature on the street for everyone else who is working or passing through there. So air conditioning actually adds to the inequality of exposure to extreme conditions. If you have to work on the street, it's getting hotter for you because of all the people using air conditioning in their offices and homes. So solutions like this, which don't increase our energy use, are yeah. wonderful to hear about. Yeah, good thoughts, Raj. I wanted, people want to know also, to uh, Dr. Bunker, is yeah. uh, just in terms of the personal, uh, this is your home, your house. Um, if you're inside the house, does it help? Does it aid the comfort living there? You know, because it, sometimes in summer it gets very hot. Yeah, exactly. So <clears throat> what I forgot to mention before was that our um, study – um, we actually have been conducting a pilot trial in rural Burkina Faso in West Africa, um, and that started about three years ago. Um, and now this has evolved. Um, we are wanting to conduct this trial in four global climate hotspots. Um, one in our neighbourhood here in New Zealand is Nui, um, which is in the Pacific and represents the Oceania region. Then India is our case study for the Asian context, urban Burkina Faso for Africa and Mexico um, in Sonora is where we're interested in doing the trial in um, for Latin America as um, you know to represent that that region and so um, by kind of bringing together these sites we want to conduct the trial where we're using a randomized controlled trial design um, to kind of coat half the roofs in the population nice. and leave leave the other half. Um, and then we track them over a year and then measure a whole lot of different outcomes, including health and comfort. Um, so just circling back on that. Now, uh, someone says here, well, our council in Tasman won't let us have a white roof. I was refused this year when applying. Um, I guess the, just finally, uh, Dr. Bunker, one of the things about this is when we think of uh, climate change tech solutions, you know, they're often run to the hundreds of millions of dollars here, uh, an average of about 200 bucks New Zealand to paint the roof, perhaps. So it's an affordable uh, solution. 
Yeah, so, I mean, the cost really differs, and it's right. it's dependent on the size of the roof, um, whether it's a brand new roof that you're bringing in or replacing, in which case it's a marginal difference. But if it's an existing roof and you're having to prepare it and then coat it, there's also different systems. So there's three-year, five-year, ten-year systems, and the cost obviously will change. Um, but in Burkina Faso, we found that, yeah, for around $200 New Zealand, you could coat a roof, and it might be a bit it's probably going to be a bit different in, in the context yeah. here because the roof sizes will increase. Um, but, but yeah, for example, um, so with what you were talking about before, it might be potentially because there's actually, um, you know, there might be a winter heating penalty in, in New Zealand because it's more of a temperate climate. It's not really a super, super climate hotspot. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it's really context dependent and you need to, have heat exposure being a constant burden. Nope, quite a, um, quite, a a really big, re- quite a big response to this, and people are really interested in the idea. Um, so, um, Aditi, I appreciate you making time for us today. That's Aditi Bunker, Project Co-Lead uh, at the Centre for Pacific and Global Health, Auckland uh, University. The panel, RNZ National, thanks for joining us. By the way, we are on iHeart. Apple, Spotify, if you can't listen to it live. Catherine Robertson and Raj Chakraborty with us today. So yesterday we discussed this issue of whether the support for the New Zealand stock market is dwindling, and if so, what's causing it. Tim Preston from CM Partners, who has years of experience working in the New Zealand capital markets, anything said anything outside the top 20 doesn't even get on the radar. But he also said the investment community needs to take social responsibility more seriously. Now, we had Stephen Franks on the panel yesterday. He helped reform the stock exchange in 1990, and he said this. Taiwan's created hundreds of companies that are innovative and, and have made them rich by treating it exactly the way we have a TAB. I went to a broking establishment, in, in fact it was taken there by a government official to see how they did it, and they did it exactly like gambling. And they didn't make a pretense that you could make investing safe. Well, you can. You can make it safe, but it's boring. You might as well put your money in the bank. That's what's wrong with the New Zealand Exchange. So not a fan of ethical investing with us is Barry Coates, founder and CEO of Mindful Money, a charity that promotes ethical investment. Kia ora, Barry. Kia ora, Wallace. What did you make of what Stephen said there? Oh, I don't think I'd like to be an investor in that uh, in that kind of stock market where it's uh, where it's being run as a gambling establishment. You know, we've got rules on on the market that uh, uh, require kind of honesty and and uh, good ethical behaviour and good governance and so on, as well as some some ethical standards. So so uh, I don't I don't agree with the the sort of the wild west idea for for stock exchanges and and. Uh, uh, I, I think it'd be a recipe for a lot of people losing a lot of money. But it's perhaps parking morality and just wanting to get the best deal uh, out of your investment. Well, you know, if you're somebody who's got a KiwiSaver account, um, most people have no idea where their KiwiSaver fund is being invested. And for most New Zealanders, they actually want to know where their money is going. They want to know whether it's going into companies that they really dislike, like weapons companies. We even found uh, a lot of companies and uh, a lot of funds in New Zealand invested in nuclear weapons manufacturer, which for New Zealanders is, is you know com- completely kind of off the radar for most people. And invest in fossil fuels and animal cruelty and all, all sorts of things. So, so 
you know, I think actually people do care about the way that their money is invested in the, and what the, what kind of companies they're invested in. Raj? And, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm a bit surprised that it has come to this um, level of neglect of, of smaller companies because I would have thought this is one of the things that, quote, um, capitalist incentive should do really well, which is basically look for those opportunities to make money that other people might be ignoring. Um, it reminded me of the idea behind the book and the movie Moneyball. So the that investors essentially need to moneyball our domestic stock exchange and to find those less glamorous, less well-known, perhaps more sustainable companies to back who are being unjustly overlooked. Stay there, Barry, and let's bring, uh, bring in Catherine. You can respond to both. Well, I was just thinking um, that what Stephen Franks was saying is not so much about what you are investing in, but understanding that investment is risky and that in some respects if you're not doing your due diligence and you are gambling as such with the money but we're very much into I think you know it's been proven that we're very much into wanting to know where our money is going and the funds you know that's why we have ethical KiwiSaver investors like Simplicity you know and funds etc and why you know fund managers are bringing people clients in on the basis that they are able to put them into funds Um, that are with companies that are doing good for the world and not, you know, creating nuclear weapons. Well, how how significant, Barry, is ESG, you know, environmental, social and governance? How significant is ethical investing now? I think, Wallace, if you listened to the New Zealand fund managers, you'd say that everyone is doing it and uh, and it's going gangbusters. However... You know, at Mindful Money, we actually see what is being invested in, the companies that are actually being invested in. We show that to the public. The reality is somewhat different. The reality is that many funds are still doing what they've always done, but they're dressing it up as being environment and social benefit. There are some really good, real, authentic and ethical investment funds, um, but, but many of them are just paying lip service. So we're seeing quite a lot of greenwash. And and that's a shame because because people, you know, really want their money to be invested in stuff that, that, that they see a future for. They said they want it to be in the sustainable industries of the future, not the polluting industries of the past. And so, uh, uh, you know, we're, we're trying to improve the, 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 the sort of the bring, bring together the gap between the 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 sort of walking the talk, the, the reality and the rhetoric and, the, and to to be able to, to have authentic ethical oh. investment that people can trust. Very nice to have you on the program, Barry Kiora. Uh, that's Barry Coates there uh, from Mindful Money, which is a charity that promotes ethical investment. Actually, quite a bit of interest about um, painting your roofs white. Get in touch with me. Have you tried to paint your roof white uh, and have been declined by the council? Email me, thepanel at rnz.co. We might come back to this uh, in the week. But finally, on today's uh, panel, it's the bird on our handy dollar note. Uh, but many of us have never seen the mohua or yellow hat, maybe because we also don't have $100 uh, in our hands that often. But for 25 years, it has been the focus of conservation efforts uh, who have had success in protecting uh, the mohua from rats. But now the bird urgently needs 
Alhau. With us is conservationist Andrew Pinnicket. Uh, kia ora, Andrew. Kia ora. Uh, thanks very much for having us on, uh, Wallace. It That's is cool. Absolute pleasure, and one of the reasons why I got you on is because I realised, uh, unlike the Kiwi or the Keredu, I know very little about the Mohua. What can you tell us about it? Well, they're one of our more endangered birds. Uh, they were widespread throughout the South Island, and there's still little pockets of them, but they're very susceptible to uh, predators because, like the Kakariki and Kaka, they nest in holes and trees. And so during the nesting season, the females are really vulnerable for any rat or stoat coming in through the hole. They just cornered. And the problem is um, the females get wiped out and you, and you might be able to go up into the forest and see a few mohua, but often they're just the males that are left and they're rattling around singing to empty territories mm. or to each other. And uh, the females are already gone, so that's what's technically called functionally extinct. And eventually they will become extinct because the females are gone. Um, oh, that's the fundamental problem. Catherine, have you seen one? I haven't, no. We get The closest we get is Yellowhammer round here, which is very <laughs> precious. I had a look at the picture of it, and my goodness, it's such a sweet little bird, isn't it? Beautiful, yeah. Oh, they're really, really beautiful. Um, and they're called the bush canary because they have beautiful songs. And in a way, too, they're also the uh, canary in the coal mine because they are about one of the most vulnerable of all our forest birds. There's very mm-hmm. few places you can see them these days. Uh, Haas Pass is one place you can. And down the Catlins, they've still got a good population they're looking after. Um, but, yeah, they're, they're sort of pretty well slowly on their way out. We have a few oh populations on offshore islands, but they're well, quite small. good on you for helping, uh, uh, you know, trying to save uh, the the gorgeous, beautiful mohua on the $100 note, Raj Chakraborty. Yeah, um, I wanted to ask Andrew about, like, um, one of the slightly, al- not slightly, really alarming implications in the article that, could it be the case that one or two warmer than usual winters, which therefore produce a great many more rats, could actually bring these birds to the brink of extinction? Yes, that's exactly the problem. I mean, uh, usually we get the rat explosions uh, after uh, a beach masting year, they call it, where there's a lot of seed. And that usually happens, well, it used to happen about every seven years or so. But now it's getting more frequent. The last one we had was about five years ago. And um, we had a huge number of rats. But fortunately, Doc was able to do a 1080 application, and that really knocked the rats back. And we actually ended up having quite a good breeding season. But uh, I don't think that's the case this time. There's just not enough funds. Doc's been chronically underfunded for uh, several governments, and uh, it's starting to show now. So what help then do you need to save the beautiful mohua, the bird that is on our hundred dollar note? What help do you need? Well, we've got a wonderful bunch of volunteers. Uh, We've got a huge trapping network. We've got uh, over 65 volunteers and most of them are over 65, but they're doing a fantastic job. But um, and so we can cope. In most years, most normal situations, but in this rat plague, uh, it's, we're going to have to call out some heavy artillery, I think. We're looking at all sorts of options, uh, poison bait stations, possibly even hand-spreading uh, 
uh, toxins, but uh, there's a lot of hurdles to do with that. And um, hopefully putting a bit more pressure on DOC to use their limited finances to help us out down here. But of course they're spread so thinly. Our, our area is just one of about 120 priority areas throughout the country that they consider yeah. for 1080. So you've got this so. local online campaign, don't you? Give a mohua for a mohua, and also you can you, you can accept a fio, a tenner, uh, a kōkāko, oh, yeah. 50, or even a hoihoa, five bucks there, so people can help. Hey, very nice to have you on, Andrew, and all the very best. Oh, thanks, Wallace. And, uh, yep, fingers crossed that uh, we're hoping we get a big dump of snow, which uh, will really knock the rats back, but... Uh we're not sure yet. Very, very good <laughs> Fingers indeed. Crossed. Thank you. And the time now is to engage your Pavlovian reaction, Raj <laughs> Chakrabori, and go and do something like a, um, like a, some skipping, perhaps. I'm going to run all run. the way home. something. <laughs> good on you. Good on you both, Catherine Robinson, Raj Chakrabori. Thank you for your time today. I'm Wallace Chapman. I am back tomorrow, uh, 3:45. See you then, Lisa Owen with Checkpoint is next.